The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. For many of the listeners and guests on this show, it was a visit to a Civil War battlefield that first sparked our imaginations, where we read interpretive plaques that described the movements of divisions and brigades, or looked at glass cases full of muskets in the museum centers. Battlefields in our childhood were all about battles. But that began to change after 1998 when the National Park Service decided to interpret the causes of the war and help visitors understand the why as well as the what of what happened. It was a controversial decision at the time, and today we'll talk with the person who is at the center of that controversy and find out how it's all worked out 14 years later. Our guest today is the former Chief Historian of the National Park Service, Dwight Pitcaithley, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, Brewster A307, on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, but speaking only for myself not for the UNC system or ECU. Indeed, one has to be careful when speaking for ECU because the First Amendment has uh, certain limitations, uh, apparently, at the gates of campus, but you'll have to read the paper to see what that's all about. Um, nor will our guest speak for his state university or former employers or anybody else. We'll all talk for ourselves, as we always do, here on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the first show of a new year 2012 civil war talk radio has gone on and on as i do in my lectures seemingly without end uh, after a <clears throat> improvised start in 2004 we're now uh, into the eighth season and there is indeed no end in sight to the scholarship and uh, issues dealing with the civil civil war that keep coming up we're trying out again today the new uh, Skype technology, at least at this end, to see if uh, how things will go. Hopefully, the sound will be clear, and if uh, if not, uh, send me an email or send an email to uh, 
uh, to the radio station to Voice America and uh, uh, let uh, World Talk Radio know how it's working. But so far, seems okay. The the website is always up, www.impedimentsofwar.org. And our uh, thanks, as always, to Mark Gaffney for running that uh, excellent website. It has a schedule of upcoming shows. You can see that there's no live show next week, one show, and I'm back out of here, but it's work calls. I'll be at the department chair's retreat, an annual event every January, where the department chairs of the College of Arts, the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences here at East Carolina University gather along the the inner banks. Uh, We can't afford to get to the outer banks, but we go to the the nearby shore and uh, uh, live in a very Spartan camp overnight and talk about the issues that concern us. Uh, Among them, the uh, proposals to retrench in these difficult economic times. There's a, a proposal that we eliminate our degree in public history that our department is dealing with. We don't really mind if they eliminate the separate degree, but they must not touch the underlying program, and that's that's the battle we're fighting. Well, we've got uh, uh, that coming up. No new show next week, but then uh, Andrea Farogi, and I'm sure I'm saying her name wrong, and I apologize in advance. We'll find out when she gets here. Uh, on January 27th, uh, with a book about uh, a book of letters between a, a Minnesota uh, soldier and his wife during the war, we don't often find collections of letters that go both directions, and this one's interesting in that regard. Then, uh, uh, no show on December. Th- I'm sorry, Jan- what month it will be? February third, two, three. Uh, once again, duty intrudes, and there's a seminar I need to appear at locally. But we'll be back on February 10th with Don McHugh, M-C-C-U-E, Don McHugh. He's the curator of the Lincoln Shrine, Redlands, California, the farthest west uh, Lincoln uh, study center, I think, in the United States. Definitely a place worth visiting if you're in that part of the country. On February 17th, Jack Dempsey will be with us to talk about Michigan in the Civil War. Uh, Jason Phillips, author of Die Hard Rebels, will be with us on the 24th. And Adam Aronson with a book on St. Louis during the Civil War, the Cultural War, uh, will be with us on the 24th. That will get us a spring break. and We'll have more shows after that. But join us for this upcoming season. And as always, feel free to uh, donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Sending your money there will get you nothing in the way of a tax deduction because it's it's a scam. It's a uh, a charade. It, it's just for me. There's no strings attached. Uh, I don't spend it for the common good. In fact, I try to spend the money on books for the show. Uh, when publishers don't come through and send copies, I go out and get them. But uh, but it's not tax deductible. It's not set up in that way. Still, your donations are welcome, and I'll be happy to send you a copy of one of my books in exchange. Let me know what you're interested in, and we'll make that work out. Well, I mentioned that there's the 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 threat of uh, the public history degree at East Carolina being uh, taken off the books. It's maybe not as serious as it sounds. Most 
history departments don't offer a separate degree in public history, at least for undergraduates, and ours is kind of an anomaly in that sense. Uh, but the idea of being able to take public history courses on your way to the standard history bachelor's degree, uh, that has to continue, and it will here at ECU and elsewhere. But the mere fact that it's up for, for grabs, that the powers that be saw this degree that they didn't understand, they didn't know what public history was, saw only half a dozen graduates in a given year, figured, oh, we'll cut that, it's tiny, uh, no one will miss it. Well, uh, if they knew what public history was, and I'm trying to educate them, they might think twice, uh, because public history is all around us, and we are fortunate to have, as our guest today, one of the uh, major players in the public history of the Civil War over the last several decades. Uh, he is Dwight T. Pitt-Kaithley, current, currently a professor in the Department of History at New Mexico State University, uh, but at one time the chief historian of the National Park Service. Uh, Dwight, are you there? I am indeed. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, delighted to, to have you here. Uh, you you held uh, the job as as chief historian of the National Park Service, one that many many of us in in Civil War studies or in public history or almost anywhere would regard as uh, uh, a dream job. So let me start by asking you: How did you get to that position? What was your background in in public history? Well, I, I uh, let me say first of all that being chief historian of the National Park Service is absolutely the best job in federal government. Um, hands down. It is more than a dream job. It's for a, for a historian, for a public historian. It's everything um, you, would, you would want it to be. Um, I have a traditional background in history. I got my Ph.D. from Texas Tech. Um, and eventually, not eventually, but fairly quickly, because I'd done some seasonal work and some research work for the National Park Service, ended up with a part-time job in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a regional office, or was a regional office at that point, 1976. And um, after a few years, decided that I wanted to remain a public historian, uh, although the word was just beginning to be coined and in public usage then. Um, and so went from Santa Fe to Boston, where I was a regional historian by title for a period of 10 years. I moved then to Washington, D.C., into another regional office, and after five years there, was offered the job as chief historian of the National Park Service in the headquarters office, and took that, and was chief historian from 1995 to 2005. Well, that, that's uh, you know, a path. It, it is an ideal path to be able to take that. Uh, it is also interesting, as you note, that, that the term public history was just coming into use, really, in the... Uh, I guess starting in the 1970s, maybe, and and, and gradually growing since then. Uh, but uh, we're only now seeing really the first generation of people uh, thoroughly trained in public history who are coming into leadership roles uh, in the field. Uh, most of the rest of us came up as, as you did, just studying history, and then next thing you know, you're you're in the the public realm. Uh, what about the Civil War? Was that always an interest of of yours? No, it wasn't. I grew up in southern New Mexico, southeastern New Mexico to be exact, and the Civil War was just not on anybody's screen there. It wasn't something I was terribly interested in. In fact, it was, wasn't anything I was interested in at all. It was uh, something I was not interested in in college, did not take a course in the Civil War. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And um, in Boston, of course, it's the Revolutionary War that everybody talks about and all the historic sites commemorate. So it wasn't until I moved to Washington in the regional office and was involved in the management of places like Antietam and Harper's Ferry, that Manassas, that I started thinking about it. And then um, it was really this meeting that you alluded to or mentioned in 1998 that uh, sort of pushed me into doing more than thinking about it, but having to essentially defend the Park Service position of expanding its interpretive program to include the causes of the war as well as what happened on the battlefield. So it was pretty, it was, it was a Johnny-come-lately to the field. Um, luckily, I had uh, been involved with some parks, Gettysburg, um, the biggest example, that had a, an history advisory committee um, of which I was an advisory, or I was an ad, had, um, ex-officio member. And so I got to spend two, uh, two sessions every year with people like Jim McPherson and Eric Foner and Gary Gallagher and Nina Silber and other illuminaries of, um, of Civil War history these days and, um, and learned a great deal from them, um, went on sort of a forced reading program of my own, um, and then um, if, if one thing led to another, and then I started doing some research on the Civil War. So it was not since, since about 19, let's say the mid-90s, uh, shortly after becoming chief historian, that I started thinking about more and spending more time um, researching and, and developing thoughts about the Civil War. Now, that, that I think it highlights a contrast then with something I said in the introduction that there are a lot of Civil War enthusiasts, uh, students of the war, um, uh, buffs is what you'd call someone else, never oneself, but uh, people who, who are interested in it who did grow up either in some place where it was a local interest mm -hmm. or for whatever reason just, just got the bug early on as, as, right. as a child and uh, uh, and, and have a, a passionate attachment to the, the history. And for those people, the battlefields are, are you know, really uh, important places. And, and I, I would put myself in that category. It was a visit to Antietam when I was 10 years old that really uh, set the hook for me and made me interested in this topic that I've, an interest I've maintained the rest of my life. So when in 1998 you, the, the Park Service began thinking about changing the interpretation, uh, you had to be aware that there was going to be an entrenched uh, but, but a tradition of not interpreting it certain ways and uh, a, a constituency that liked it just fine the way it was. Yes. Yeah. Indeed, the tradition of the Park Service, as you, as you mentioned, was to say nothing about causes, uh, not states' rights, not slavery. There's an absolute silence. Uh, I should back up just a little bit and mention that the, while the national battlefield parks were created by Congress, or at least the first five were created by Congress in the 1890s, um, at that time, there was no National Park Service, and so they were managed by the Department of War and were until 1933 when they were transferred to the National Park Service in a, in a sort of major uh, shift by Franklin Roosevelt. So the Park Service didn't become involved in managing and interpreting the battlefield until August of 1933. And it um, simply adopted, this is in the height of 
segregation of the races in this country. Uh, the Park Service realized that um, talking about the causes was very um, awkward, uh, contentious, um, would alienate a lot of people whose support had um, built the Park Service. Um, was also very aware that in places like Virginia, which had a number of Civil War battlefields, um, this would be the federal government yet again telling people what to think about the Civil War. And, and in Virginia specifically, the Park Service made a deal with the state of Virginia that recognizing the sensitivity of these issues, at least for white Southerners, um, the Park Service would develop no brochure, um, handbook, exhibit, slideshow, any, any kind of interpretive device without first running it by the state historian and Douglas Southall Freeman, uh, one of the leading Civil War um, lost cause uh, authors, Pulitzer Prize winner um, in, the, in the country at that time. And, and that tradition of not saying anything about causes, focusing on the battles, focusing on um, this front, that front, this assault, and so forth, <coughs> continued until until the mid-90s, until uh, in the mid-90s there were a number of both historians in the Park Service and superintendents who had had um, advanced training, college training that is, education in history and realized that with the sesquicentennial coming up, it, um, it was sort of like the ostrich sticking its head in the sand for the Park Service not to say something about uh, the causes of the war, and hence the meeting in Nashville and the... And the uh, and the decision by the superintendents. This was a this was a park generated uh, initiative. I, I hasten to add, this was not a top down Washington dictate. The superintendents agreed uh, agreed they needed to to do this, and uh, everybody I think was very much aware that there would be some pushback from it, and indeed there was. I, I hearing that description makes me think that. The, the lack of, uh, of of causation or the, the lack of interpretation of anything but the battles as battles uh, was certainly part of the appeal I, I think if you if you envision a civil war battlefield as a giant uh, you know football game uh, that is where the the whole thing is the game you don't you don't question why Michigan plays Ohio State every year you know, other than that it's a titanic struggle of good versus evil, as, as all Wolverines know, but the, uh, but the game is the thing. You don't have to worry about the context, it's just the game is the game. It, it's independent of its context, so when external things like scandals intrude on football, that, that kind of spoils it. So, if the, the Battle of Antietam is just a question of who goes around which flank and how you do it and who's brave, uh, and you can divorce it from any political context. It's much more enjoyable as a uh, a, a value-free exercise in just uh, brave men fighting. You also have to eliminate the the bloodshed if you think too seriously about that. It's unpleasant, but uh, <laughs> it becomes uh, rather uh, antiseptic. It, 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 but if it's antiseptic enough and uh, apolitical enough, it's it, it's more fun than football. Well, and, and in fact, uh, one of the traditions of the Park Service, maybe not overtly, but certainly covertly, is that the federal government wants people to have fun when they go to parks, whether it's a natural park like Yosemite or Yellowstone or Mesa Verde or White Sands near me now. Um, 
you want you to have fun. You want you to enjoy yourself. You're on vacation. So, so I think that that's a part of what prevented the Park Service from rolling up its sleeves and saying, we're not going to just entertain the people here, but we're going to say something meaningful about the importance of this event that brought these men together on this battlefield in the first place. Well, you know, one could argue that, that, that things were said that were important. Uh, I, I, we shouldn't downplay the, the battlefields were still very moving places, even when free of the political interpretation. Uh, there was a, an awareness of the, the loss and sacrifice. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure if fun is, is the right word for that, but but it's a sort of uh, guilt-free indulgence in indeed f- feeling good about our heritage. Everybody was brave. Everybody was was noble. Everybody was uh, doing what they thought was right. So you don't have to worry about anything else. Let's take a break at this moment and come back and talk more about this issue. Uh, our guest today is Dwight Kaefley. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market in the hustle and bustle world we live in we need to be reminded that in all failures and successes we are the common denominators the change needs to come from within each week, let Daniel Gutierrez and Osmara Vindel help bring you the tools you need to manage your success. We'll talk with the movers and shakers of business and personal development and see what makes them tick. The only bilingual radio show, right here, right now. Aki Ia Ora airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Dwight Pitt-Kaithley. He's professor of history at the New Mexico State University and also the former chief historian of the National Park Service, where he was uh, in charge of the interpretation of National Park Service sites, including Civil War battlefields, uh, and he was he held that position during the era from the late 90s, early 2000s, when the Park Service began to reinterpret battlefields from simply uh, military scrimmage sites to sites within the Civil War, where the causes of the war itself were being uh, interpreted, as well as the events on the, the scene itself. Uh, Dwight, let me ask you what what does that what did that mean? What actually changes at a battlefield when when the Park Service began to do the reinterpretation? Uh, uh, did did people just go in overnight, change all the interpretive plaques and materials, write new? Uh, it would that it would be that easy? 
Um, it took a while. Uh, in fact, now it's been um, ten years or so since it really took hold and and changes were made. The Park Service then and now uh, is not a wealthy agency, and so each park was sort of left to its own devices to find the money to uh, change the brochure, uh, produce a new handbook, change the exhibits, put up new exhibits, um, that sort of thing, a new film. Um, in Gettysburg's case, they built an entire new visitor center with new exhibits and film with private money, not with not with public money. So it happened, and, and it was designed to be a localized um, effort. That is, what it was said in, in one part didn't fit what was said or or the causes in, in one state versus another state. So so the, the superintendents were um, left to develop their own programs, most of them wisely partnered with um, a university or professors, Civil War professors or scholars around the country to develop their their message. And so bit by bit, you would see a, a, a new plaque going up, let's say, at Manassas, a little larger um, exhibits going up at Richmond, at Fort Sumter. Uh, uh, right at this time, Fort Sumter was fortunate enough to buy a permanent base of its um, docking facilities to take the boats out to Fort Sumter, built a new building, and had um, uh, an entire display area to to craft the story of, and what better place to craft the story of, of the causes of the war than at Fort Sumter. So it happened incrementally, bit by bit, over the, over the last 12 years. Um, uh, Fort Sumter is an interesting case. I remember seeing it not long after it opened, uh, the, the the new building there, uh, and I was struck by the interpretation. On the one hand, it did have in in the the it was a building you, as you said you go to when you're where the boat docks it takes you out to the island. So while you're waiting for the boat, you can look in this museum, small museum, and there was a, a whole section on slavery in the South. And it was very clear that this was part of the world in which Fort Sumter existed, the world of 1861. And to me, as a historian, it made perfect sense. You could hardly avoid that. But the the spin uh, I, I found noticeable. The, the uh, uh, Lincoln, for example, was represented by two quotes uh, on the wall. And out of the eight volumes of printed material, nine volumes, you include the index and the, the extra things of, of everything Lincoln said in writing, uh, probably the two most uh, uncomfortable, uh, racially negative things he ever said uh, are the, the letter to Horace Greeley in August 1862 and his uh, comments about color to Douglas during the debates, particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, and those are the two quotes that you see from Lincoln. The, the, for our listeners who are grabbing for their, their, uh, um, uh, their, their copy of, of Lincoln, of, of, of Basler's Lincoln, uh, the, the Greeley letter, of course, is the one where he says, if I could, uh, if I could end the war by, by freeing the slaves, I would do so. If I could do it by not freeing the slaves, I would do that. If I could do it by freeing some and leaving others alone. That also I would do. Uh, in other words, everything is about the war. It's not about 
helping the slaves. Mm-hmm. And the, the other quote from the Lincoln-Douglas debates is where he goes on about how he does not believe in political or social equality, uh, just just uh, freedom, uh, you know, the equal human rights, but not equal political or social rights for African Americans. Well, both of those in context make perfect sense, uh, but the exhibit doesn't show that much of the context. It simply presents Lincoln in these two quotes as someone who was not the least bit interested in black freedom or equality uh, and leads us to interpret him that way. Uh, so, let me go back to asking you about the process by which something like that would be reached. You said this every exhibit, every site did it its own way. That's right. Uh, so so uh, Fort Sumter could come up with this rather, I thought, skewed version of, of Abraham Lincoln, but uh, Harper's Ferry might do it quite differently. Or Gettysburg. Yeah, there was no, there was no, and there was not then and there is not now any sort of a clearing house for what parks say. Um, um, they weren't they weren't required, for example, to run text by me. Um, that um, they have there's there's regional staff. Every park has park historians. Not every park has park historians, but certainly Fort Sumter had park historians that developed the message. Um, there are regional historians, regional National Park Service historians that were involved. I know that they worked with uh, a couple of local historians um, in in Charles in uh, Charleston and and developed um, the, spun the story as you say in in the way they want. Um, had they run it by me, I would have uh, wanted them to do some other things. What um, the notable absence um, that I saw was. Uh, any reference to or quotes from South Carolina's Declaration of Secession. There are only four states that developed these, and South Carolina was obviously the first to do it. Declaration specifically designed by the Secession Convention to let the people of that state and other states know why South Carolina had to secede. It's the, it's the best evidence we have on why those four southern states seceded, and it didn't find a role, a place in this exhibit, and I thought that was a, an oversight. Uh, that that is interesting. That I at the time when I was there, I asked uh, one of the the staff about this, and and she was very uh, forthcoming about it, and said there were it was a, a give and take process. There was local input, and uh, the exhibit was not everything. Perhaps a trained historian, particularly one not from South Carolina, might favor, but there had to be compromises reached. And uh, uh, this brings up the fact then that, that when you go to a National Park Service exhibit, you're not you're not hearing the, the voice of the federal government. Uh, you're hearing uh, a, a relatively local voice. Which well, it, is, it, it, it varies. Um, and ultimately, when it gets out there, uh, I think you can say it, it is the voice of the federal government because they're the ones who, who put it up there. Uh, but they're all developed by people, by historians, some of them local. Gettysburg's, for example, had this uh, national committee um, of historians, one from Gettysburg College, local. Um, others, Jim McPherson, Eric Foner, Gary Gallagher, Nina Silver from around the country. Um, so that's a, a, a different um, approach to it than, and and I must say the more common approach is to get together a larger group of historians from around the country 
um, Fort Sumter's was an early effort at this. It's neither here nor there, really, and I'm certainly not here to defend um, anything it said. But um, uh, it was up to the superintendent. Superintendents in the Park Service have a fair degree of autonomy anyway, uh, but they are in charge of sometimes millions of dollars of resources and equipment and vehicles and that sort of thing. And um, they're also then responsible for what's said um, in any interpretive um, interpretive presentation. Now, this this change, at a place like Fort Sumter, it made perfect sense, as you said. If you're going to talk about the cause of the war anywhere, uh, Fort Sumter is the place to do it. The idea of, of presenting that just as a battle with the caliber of the artillery used uh, really doesn't get us very far. The, the obvious question is why are Americans shooting at each other? Uh, what, what brought us to that point? It's not as immediately clear that, uh, that Shiloh requires the same interpretation mm-hmm. or, or Gettysburg for that matter. Uh, how did you respond then uh, or now when, when someone says, well, you know, okay, we don't need that same lesson everywhere we go. What, right. Right. Uh, tell us about the battle. And, well, there was a, a, a lot of misinformation was put out originally after that Nashville meeting. And one of the, one of the uh, themes was that um, the, the National Park Service is removing all of its military history, uh, all of its military interpretation from these places, and it's only going to talk about slavery as a cause of the war, um, which was, of course, never what was envisioned. These places, whether it's Gettysburg or Fort Sumter or Antietam or Shiloh, have significance because of something that something very important happened on those acres different from what didn't happen on the, on the adjoining acres. So talking about the military history of, the, of those places is absolutely essential to the, to, the, to, the interpretation, to the interpretive program of those parks. What was envisioned and what went into place ultimately was uh, an element or an, an additive, if you will, that served as preface. To this, how do you understand why those people were, uh, what those people were doing there? Unless you know what brought them there originally. So, the the change in interpretation was intellectually a major shift, but in, but practically it was simply conceived of as as an addition to what was already there. So people had some sense of why those men were trying to kill each other. As an introduction, if you will, to um, to the battle itself, and I th- and I think over the years uh, there's been uh, I think it's safe to say that there's been no diminution of the military history, and in some places there's been even an expansion of that. But in addition to that, visitors, in some fashion, in exhibits, in the film, in the handbook, in the uh, free brochure, you get. There is um, the, the visitors are offered some sense of what caused the war and what the, brought those men together in that place. And another thread in understanding this is in every site, the Park Service must describe what happened there. I mean, that's sort of the essence of place-based interpretation. But um, the, the Park Service also attempts to give an indication of why it happened there, why this conference why this or that. Um, in Civil War parks, that was completely absent. 
there was no attempt even to nudge up against why was this occurring and and this uh, the shift from 1998 on was an attempt to rectify that for Civil War battlefields. I, I suppose that when you think about it in those terms, think of other sites. If you had uh, uh, something about the Old North Church and uh, <laughs> the colonists decided to go uh, you know, to deal with the, the British regulars marching in the countryside, um, describing it purely as an action without explaining why the soldiers are going there, or why the uh, the civilians are going to mobilize and fight them. It would be kind of strange. Or if you take an extreme example, like you know, Seneca Falls, the Women's Rights Convention, simply described in terms of the agenda and how many people were there and where they That's went, right. but nothing about why they met there. That's right. It would be a bizarre uh, uh, interpretation indeed. Or, or another is the uh, uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. If you just describe the attack... You would certainly be left wondering, well, why did they feel they had to do that? And so some sites beg the why question. Um, I think, for me, Civil War sites beg it, but for years uh, that question was left unanswered. Well, the, I suppose one challenge, and just to be clear, I, I certainly think that there was a long overdue move, and I think it's been well executed as well. Uh, but to, to play the devil's advocate, what... You now you say that the sites now explain something about why the Civil War occurred, but if you have three historians in the room and ask them why the war occurred, you'll get you know four or five or six opinions. Uh, can can how how can the Park Service say why the war occurred? Well, I think that certainly in in the South, it's um, not simple talking about war is never simple talking about the Civil War. Certainly not simple. But uh, there is uh, uh, plenty of evidence in, let's say, why Mississippi seceded. We have a couple of parks in, in Mississippi um, that commemorate and remember the Civil War. Um, Mississippi, like 11 other states, went through a very organized, detailed secession process. Uh, with the election of delegates and the holding of the convention and the keeping of records and the voting and proposals and that sort of thing. And, and those were published immediately. And so let's keep with Mississippi for, for an example. Um, Mississippi also is one of those four states that left a declaration of secession. So um, that's grist for the mill. You can take not only the arguments that were made during the convention, but um, quotes from that declaration, which in Mississippi's case is fairly short, and um, and use that in the interpretive program, as they have at both Vicksburg and uh, Corinth. In the visitor center, uh, there are quotes from, or maybe uh, I think it's not the whole uh, declaration, but certainly quotes from the declaration that um, start prompting a conversation about why Mississippi seceded, and of course, without secession, there would have been no war. Now, you mentioned uh, several points that there was pushback when this happened. Uh, let's take another break and come back and talk about reactions and, and how you and the, the Park Service dealt with them uh, when, when this change took place uh, in, over the last 10, 12 years now. We'll be back in just a moment. We're talking with Dwight Pitt-Kaithley former Chief Historian of the National Park Service. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Are you easily hooked? Are you not into the old bait and switch? Do you like to get yourself into fishy situations? We've got a show that will help you with all of these situations and much more. Tune in to Sportsman's Addiction, Got Fish or Got Rum, with MJ Atong, along with her counterparts, Captain Ozzy Gonzalez and Roddy Hayes. If you're in the fishing industry, a weekend hobbyist, or just like to take a nice fishing trip every so often, this show is for you. Sportsman's Addiction, Got Fish or Got Rum, airs live Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dwight T. Pitt-Caithley. He is the former chief historian of the National Park Service and filled that role uh, in the contentious years when the Park Service was reinterpreting its Civil War battlefields to reflect not just what happened uh, on the day of the battle, but also the causes of the war that led people to fight that battle in the first place. And uh, Dwight, as we were just talking about at the end of the last segment, there were certainly people who uh, objected for one reason or another to this change in interpretive direction. Uh, And I guess some of that opposition was was pretty heated. Uh, Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, It was pretty heated. And uh, in fact, if I had read some of the articles and uh, circulars that were going out from some Confederate veterans and Civil War roundtables about what uh, we were doing or the spin they put on what I'd, I'd have been pretty hot, too. Uh, that related to the, the notion that the Park Service was eliminating all of its military um, interpretation. It was going to simply talk about um, social events and slavery and uh, beat the visitor over the head with the slavery club. Um, and so if I had received that, uh, I probably would have written a very hot letter, too. In fact, we got about 2,500 cards and letters. Some of them were formal cards developed by the Sons of Confederate Veterans that were mailed, that were pre-printed. Uh, people just simply had to put a stamp on it and send it in. Um, and others were uh, then a couple of hundred letters uh, that we got, and all that ended up on my desk. Some of it was directed to the Secretary of the Interior, some of it directed to the Director of the Park Service, some of it directed specifically to me, but ultimately it all ended up on, on my desk. Um, which I have to say, parenthetically, was a, a great, the high point of my career. I really enjoyed 
um, answering those letters as we felt obligated to do. Um, these letter writers were taxpayers and were genuinely concerned about what their federal government was doing, and we believed we had an obligation to let them know. And so for every card or letter that had a return address, we crafted a, a, a response um, trying to set the record straight and exactly what the Park Service was doing and why. Um, and um, if, if it was a pre-printed card, it was a kind of a standard letter that we said. If, if they added comments at the bottom of the card or wrote a letter that had other information, we tailored the letter to respond to their specific comments. And in some of those instances, I even developed a back and forth um, between the between the letter writer and he would he or she would respond and I would respond and um, that worked out fairly well. It also allowed me to, or forced me, I should say, to think more deeply about secession and um, and why those southern states believed they they had to leave and in, and, and sometimes they challenged me. Um, I remember one letter saying, well, you don't know anything about the Civil War. If you knew anything about the Corwin Amendment, you'd know it wasn't about slavery. Well, I hadn't a clue what the Corwin Amendment was, um, but I hurried to the, to the books and uh, figured out very quickly what it, what it was and, um, and what I then had to think about it in terms of secession. The Corwin Amendment um, was the, essentially the first 13th Amendment that was passed. On uh, on March fourth of eighteen sixty one, just hours before Lincoln uh, Lincoln's first inaugural address, that uh, was passed by both houses of Congress and ratified by three states that said um, Congress has no authority to interfere with or abolish slavery in the states, and it was passed because um, because no one was arguing that Congress did have that authority. So it was almost a, a sop in the wrong direction to what the main argument was in Congress and in the, in the secession conventions. But at any rate, um, I, I tried to respond um, as best I could. I had, I had read Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. I'd had many conversations with Jim and, and with others. And, and so I, I, I sort of offered the McPherson uh, response. <coughs> and um, very quickly got a response back. Well, well, he's a he's a Yankee historian. He really doesn't know our Southern history, and so I thought, well, that's easy. I can I can do that. So I would quote then Bill Davis or Bill Cooper or, or Gary Gallagher, all of whom teach in uh, the South, and uh, got the response that well, they're scalawag historians. So I had to <laughs> I had to rethink and recalibrate how I wanted to do this. And as I've said a couple of times, it it um, it, it finally or uh, fairly quickly, I guess at that point occurred to me that the more I could base my response on primary source material, uh, the better chance I had of, of, um, of defending the Park Service, essentially what I was doing. So, um, so at that point, I had to, to learn the literature of uh, secession or took it upon myself to learn the literature of secession. So I would, I would if, if, the, if the writer were from Texas, I would use um, a quote from Sam Houston or Louis T. Wigfall, or again, Texas is one of those states that has a, a declaration of secession. I would quote from it, and then that that changes the equation a little bit. Instead of arguing with the Park Service, you've got to argue with the secessionists, and it and it and it sort of creates neutral ground 
where um, people can have a conversation about primary sources, and you're not arguing about the federal government as much as you're arguing about what the secessionists at the time in the room thought and said and voted upon. I think the mere fact also that you're responding to these people uh, is, is great uh, is, is proper public relations is the right thing to do and uh, uh, people are often surprised to get a letter back in those circumstances. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, many of our respondents um, responded with exactly that comment that they never expected to, to get a response. We never uh, considered otherwise. I mean, we assumed from the beginning when these started coming in that um, as, as with any um, in, in my office and in, I think in most National Park Service offices, there's a, a sense of public service that if you get a letter, either positive or negative, you have an obligation to respond to it. And so we never considered not responding to all these letters. And as I said earlier, I, I rather enjoyed doing it. <coughs> Let me ask you about a different controversy. Just change tack for a minute. Looking at your, your CV, you've written about many interesting things. Uh, one that I thought that I'm particularly uh, curious about is your most recent work on the uh, Abraham Lincoln birthplace cabin. Uh, the visitors who go to the, the Lincoln birthplace site in, in Hodgenville, Kentucky, can see you know, inside a, a Greek temple in the woods a cabin in which Lincoln, uh, uh, well, there's a cabin in the temple. There's a cabin in the temple, that's right. Uh, uh, I, I was looking at your CV, and I saw there's an article you wrote just a few years ago that I was not familiar with. I wonder if there is there any update on the, the cabin in the temple since, say, 2006 or seven. No, no. I think, um, I think the one you're alluding to is one I co-authored with the Chief of Interpretation at the park. That's right. And um, it came out. I'd written an earlier article um, on the cabin, fascinating cabin, uh, fascinating story. Um, to, to shorten it up, um, it is a cabin. It is certainly a log cabin. Um, it, uh, in all likelihood, had absolutely nothing to do with Lincoln's birth. Uh, it wasn't identified as the birthplace cabin until about 1894. He was born in 1809. Um, and log, logs from a, ca a local cabin were moved in 1849 from an adjoining farm to... Um, the Lincoln Birthplace Farm, or the Thomas Lincoln Farm in Hodgenville, Kentucky, and re-erected um, in an attempt to actually get money from a uh, Grand Army of the Republic reunion that was being held in Louisville at that time. And then it, over the years it was, it was dismantled, it was moved around, um, and, and eventually after, I think, nine or eleven of these dismantlings and re-erecting uh, efforts, it was brought back to Hodgenville and put within the, in the tomb, uh, in the shrine building. Um, luckily for us, uh, the logs were numbered when they left the farm in 1897 to go to, to New York City, of all places, in the Bronx, where it was going to go to Coney Island and, and other points. Um, and so we know that 30% of the logs in the cabin today uh, were those in 1897. 60% of the logs are replacement logs um, that were added to it between its leaving in 1897 and returning in 1906. So only 30% of the logs have a chance of being 
original. But the the history of the of the cabin is such that there's absolutely no way of determining that. We did a dendrochronology, a tree ring study, a couple of years ago. Um, the logs are terribly deteriorated. We got decent cores on two of the logs, one dated from the 1840s and one from the 1850s. Um, so there's really no um, no chance, I think. And we, we essentially knew that before the tree ring study, but it sort of confirmed um, what was there. Nevertheless, having said that, uh, it is certainly symbolic of Lincoln's cabin. It's roughly the same size, although... John Russell Pope, when he designed the tomb, realized that the cabin was too large for the interior space he had designed and said, not a problem, I'll just cut the cabin down. So he, he cut it a couple feet in length and a couple feet in width. So if you go, it's, it, it looks like it soars vertically, and that's because um, it was because of this trimming process. It, it began as a, a squatter building, and because it was trimmed on the sides, uh, the short ends, it, was, it, it seems to go up. Um, and have, it seems to have a loft. It never had a loft. Uh, so it's a, it's a very, it's a wonderful building. I love the story. Um, but it's a shrine. It's, uh, and people go, it gets, I don't know what the, popu- the, the uh, annual visitation is now. At one point, it was around 200,000 people a year for a place in the middle of, of Kentucky. Uh, that's, that's astonishing. Um, it, it is really a, a somewhat remote location, but... It, yeah. but uh, uh, it's an astonishing sight when you see the uh, looks like a, a sort of New Deal era bank or a, a Greek temple, right. an American version of a Greek temple on the hill in the woods. Uh, and then you go in, there's another cabin in there. You wonder if there's a temple inside the cabin. Well, there's, there's a, the, this tradition of putting historic buildings in other buildings. Um, that And the Park Service manages some of those, other places manage others. But uh, for a while there was that idea of this is the way you do it. You protect them by putting them inside other buildings. And the interpretation there, the, the at one time the description was that this was the, the traditional birthplace cabin. I think now it's called the symbolic birthplace cabin. That's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, there was a, a, an author in about 1950 who outed the story. Um, the Park Service, uh, the, the, the Lincoln birthplace was one of those sites that was first managed by the Department of War um, when it was created in 1911, that is when the historic site was created in 1911. Park Service didn't inherit it until 1933 in that major shift of land. And so the Park Service, um, there are indications that the Park Service thought something was wrong with the story, something didn't quite fit, but didn't have the resources, World War II came along, um, and the, the, the office in, in Washington was moved to Chicago for about seven years, um, and the funding of the Park Service um, went through the bottom. Finally, it came back, and this author uh, wrote this article that was circulated widely that um, said the Park Service was managing a cabin that had nothing to do with Abraham Lincoln. It caused a major furor in the, um, in the Park Service. Uh, they put the local, there was a historian on site, put him on the records, on the deeds, and so forth, and um, it, it became a big issue in Washington. They met with major historians uh, in Illinois and other places, and everybody concluded that um, this is not the birthplace cabin. And so the Park Service's response was to call it the traditional birthplace cabin, thinking that gave them an out. Uh, but of course, I think to the average visitor, what does that mean? Well, it means it's the traditional, it must be the real thing. And so that continued until fairly recently, interestingly enough, uh, probably the 
um, the 90s, I would guess, um, the park finally thought maybe the symbolic birthplace would be better. And in fact, um, the exhibits that they have or the waysides that are the visitor sees around that Greek temple make it very clear that uh, this is, was not the original birthplace cabin, but it is symbolic of the kinds of cabins uh, that were built in Kentucky at that time. Well, it is really a uh, uh, you know a fascinating site and, and worth uh, worth people visiting, uh, regardless of its its provenance. Uh, you know, when they were taking it apart and putting it back together, it, it, as I recall, at one of those exhibitions, they also had a Jefferson Davis birthplace cabin of, of similar Indeed. dubious in uh, Nashville, uh, actually in Nashville. So yeah. when they reassembled, they they mixed everything together. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> It's yeah, conceivable both, there are Jefferson Davis. <laughs> that, well, both cabins went to went to New York um, on on loan. They both ended up at the um, uh, exp- exhibition in Buffalo, where McKinley was killed, side by side. There are excellent Library of Congress photographs of them there. Uh, after McKinley was killed, they were they were put on a on a train and taken back to. Uh, the Bronx, and that's when they got intermingled. And uh, at one point, they called it the uh, Lincoln Davis cabin, uh, but but it was never shown at Coney Island as expected. And then, uh, by the time it came back to the site in 1906, people had forgotten about the Jefferson Davis connection, who was also uh, born in Kentucky, of course. Um, True. And so they had all of these logs, and there's a picture of it in Central Park in Louisville with uh, this huge log cabin with parts left over that was uh, built at that point only as the Lincoln cabin. Well, truly a, a Lincoln log story Indeed. there. Dwight, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I'm sorry to say we're out of time, but uh, keep up the good work, and your 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 work at Battlefields uh, will... Uh, continue to uh, educate everyone who goes to see them. So thank you for being on the show. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.